This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is a selection of verses from the book of Proverbs. You can find it printed in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, So does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we better pray. Uh, it's a tough topic on a morning where you've all lost an hour of sleep. So let's, uh, let's pray for the Lord to help us. Uh, Father, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Uh, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be among us. And um, we pray that we would be not just hearers of your word, but doers of it uh, as well. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would make not only this message, but the entirety of our service useful, useful to us and useful to our neighbors as we go out into the world after the service. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a, uh, a scene in uh, the Quentin Tarantino movie, Jackie Brown, where uh, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, his character, is um, confronting a young woman, his girlfriend, And uh, he says to her, he says, listen, you can't just sit around on the couch all day. You're going to lose your ambition. To which she responds, not if my ambition is to sit around on the couch all day. (laughs) Which, touche, Jackie Brown's girlfriend, touche. We're talking about sloth uh, this morning, or sometimes it's called in the scriptures, uh, the life of the sluggard. And uh, if you've been here over the past few weeks, you know that from now until Easter... We have been talking, talking about the subject of sin. Uh, we've been talking about its effects, how it works, what types of sin there are, and ultimately, how to be healed of it. And particularly, we've used an ancient list uh, that Christians have used throughout history called uh, the seven deadly sins. And, and these are not the worst sins, per se, but they are the most common ones. They're the ones that are most likely to trip you up, the ones that are most likely to take control of your life. And the goal of the series is not to weigh you down. The goal is to pursue life, 
Because the Bible says that we are made in God's image. We are his image bearers. And we are made then to live big lives, to live full lives, meaningful lives, lives that make a difference, lives that are full of joy and peace and beauty. And just like doctors need to study disease in order to bring healing and farmers need to know about pests and predators in order to protect their crops, so we need to understand how sin works and how it can ruin lives in order that we can move forward into the way of wholeness and peace and joy. And so that's what we're after in this series. And in weeks past, we looked at anger. We looked at uh, the second week was on gluttony. Last week, we talked about lust. And this morning, we talk about sloth. So just as we get started, let's do a little diagnosis. What is sloth? And first, let me say what we don't mean. We don't mean this guy, the next slide there. That's not, isn't that cute? Uh, that's not who we're talking about. This is a sloth, uh, but this is not what the book of Proverbs is rebuking or speaking out against, right? Of course, that's the cutest thing in the whole wide world. We wouldn't want to speak against a sloth. But we're also, we're not talking about rest. Sloth is not the same thing as resting. In fact, resting is something that God commands of his people. It makes it into the Ten Commandments is one of the most important things for how we live. There is a Sabbath rest that God invites his people into each week. God himself is said to rest after he had done the work of creation. Hebrews chapter 4 likens salvation in Jesus Christ to a kind of spiritual rest that all the other rests that we take are meant to point to, right? And we should all strive to enter into. So sloth is not the same thing as rest. So if that's not what sloth is, then what is it? Uh, look at your first proverb that's in your list there. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. It says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, that contrast between sloth or sluggardliness, a slack hand on the one hand, and then uh, diligence on the other hand, that really is the contrast that's made throughout the book of Proverbs between these two. Uh, sloth is described as the opposite of diligence. Or to put it another way, sloth is the opposite of being engaged with the world. It's the opposite of being engaged with your work. It's the opposite of being engaged with other people. Proverbs really kind of pictures there's two types of people in this world, or at least we tend toward one type or another. The one type of person sees a need in the world and responds with active engagement. The other type of person sees a need and the response is disengagement, right? And the second type is what sloth is all about. The sluggard backs away, sees a need and backs away. The first person engages with the intent of bringing joy and peace and hope to the family, to the community, to the church. The other backs away, ignoring needs and ultimately retreating from the world and from others. So sloth involves then both a behavior and an attitude. The behavior you might call laziness or disengagement. The attitude is apathy or indifference. But let's think about the behavior first. And we get a picture of how this plays out in Proverbs chapter 26. That's the second to the last of your grouping of Proverbs there in your bulletins. Proverbs 26. And here you get a guy who's willing to do just about anything to get out of work. 
He's even willing to make up bizarre excuses in order to do so, right? He said, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets, which is interesting because there's not a lot of lions that walk around the streets of villages and towns in Palestine. Now, I wrote that line not knowing that this week there was going to be an African Several, a cat, a big sort of bobcat kind of thing found in Oakley in our own neighborhood this week who the zoo had to capture, who also was high on cocaine. I don't understand a lot about that story, but you can look it up. WCPO has a story about it. Uh, so as rare as it, <laughs> as it is, I guess it can sometimes happen. But all the commentators will tell you lions are not common in the streets of Jerusalem, the streets of Palestine. So this is an excuse And don't we do this from time to time at least, right? Make up excuses to keep from doing things, at least in our own minds even, to keep from doing things. It gets even more ridiculous though. One sluggard is making excuses. The other one won't even get out of bed. Verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The only thing more slothful than making up a lame excuse is an unwillingness to get out of bed when somebody's yelling at you that there's a lion nearby, right? And this is all satire, of course. But it teaches a feature of sloth, sleepy indifference. Sloth is sleepy indifference. What makes sloth sloth is not the nap. It's the nap in the midst of a cry that there's a lion in the streets, It's the shrug of the shoulders to danger. It's the shrug of the shoulders to urgency. It's the shrug of the shoulders to need when you see it. And maybe the saddest picture of all is in verse 15. He reaches out to get some food, but he's too lazy to bring his hand back to his mouth. And the Old Testament scholar, uh, Derek Kidner, summarizes the whole book of Proverbs on this, on his description of the sluggard. He says, a sluggard is one who will not begin things. He will not finish things. And he will not face things. He will not begin things. He will not finish things. And he will not face things. Let's think about this just for a moment. All right? He will not begin things. Just quoting Kidner again here. All the sluggard knows is his delicious drowsiness. All he asks is a little respite. He does not commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by inches and minutes... His opportunity slips away. What are you putting off? What do you know that you need to get to that you just can't seem to get started on? What is God calling you to that you've been saying not yet? A sluggard will not begin things. Secondly, he will not finish things. Like the guy with his hand in the food dish, some of us can't finish a project. There's excitement in getting started, but we can't seem to ever stick it out. And this is important because there is such a thing as a busy sluggard. Lots of ideas, lots of creativity, lots of activity, and lots of unfinished projects. He will not finish things. And then thirdly, a sluggard will not face things. This is when you come to believe in your own excuses. You know, maybe there really is a lion in the streets. I heard about that African several, right? Like maybe there is a lion in the streets. Or maybe maybe it's not just believing your own excuses. Maybe you just get to be an expert at dodging hard things. Proverbs 20 verse 4, the third one in your list, it says, The slugger does not plow in the autumn. In other words, he doesn't want to work when it's cold, 
To which one commentator says, sloth makes a habit of the soft choice. Sloth makes a habit of the soft choice. Not what is best, not what is right, but what is easiest. And you do this enough and your character suffers as much as your work. But sloth is not just about behavior. It's also an attitude. And the Greeks used to use the word acedia to talk about this, which means indifference. And listen to how Dorothy Sayers describes the attitude behind sloth. She says, sloth is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing to die for. It's a pretty damning indictment there. Sloth, in that sense, is really another way to talk about apathy. It's whatever. Who cares? Meh. Proverbs 26, 16 gets at the bottom of this idea of the attitude of sloth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. In other words, okay, let me read it again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The slothful person, in other words, is turned entirely in upon themselves. They're, they're in the center. They're, everyone and everything else is pushed to the periphery, so much so they become blind and deaf to good counsel, so much so that they become blind and deaf to the needs of the world. Very simply, sloth doesn't care. And this is why Christianity is fundamentally opposed to sloth. Christianity encourages a passion for life and a passion for all that is good and beautiful and true and noble and wise in this world. Sloth is sleepy indifference. It's apathy and disengagement. Now, if that's what sloth is, let's do a little prognosis. What will it do to you? Right? Untreated, what will sloth do to you? And if you've been coming these last few weeks, you can probably predict, because we've been saying basically the same thing for each of these of the seven deadly sins. Very simply, like all sin, sloth will ruin you. It'll ruin your work. It'll ruin your relationships. It can even ruin your soul. First of all, sloth ruins your work. And maybe that's the most obvious of these observations this morning. Proverbs 24, the big selection right there in the middle of all the Proverbs in your list. Proverbs 24, verse 30, it says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. And so the writer of Proverbs is out on a stroll. He sees this as an evidence, right, as a teaching point uh, for what sloth does. And the field, it's in bad shape. It's, it's been neglected. Thorns and weeds are crowding out the crop. The walls are crumbling down, leaving it open to predators and pests. Laziness has led to disarray, a kind of decreation, a chaos that's setting in in this place. Verse 32, and then I saw and considered it. That's, in other words, he observes this and now he thinks, I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is a simple but a really important teaching. A failure to work hard will certainly mean that your work suffers. 
but it also can lead you into all kinds of trouble and eventually into financial ruin. Sloth ruins your work. Sloth also ruins relationships. And back to the first set of Proverbs there, Proverbs chapter 10. It says, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Now, why doesn't it say, right, he who sleeps in harvest is a disgraceful boy? Or he who sleeps in harvest is a disgraceful man or woman? Why, in this case, does it say son? It's important that Bible commentators will tell us the relational metaphor is in there because the Bible is saying that a failure to be diligent in your work is not just a failure that affects yourself. A failure to be diligent in your work doesn't just bring shame upon yourself, doesn't bring disaster only upon you, but it also brings a failing to your family because your work is not just for you. It's for the family, or more broadly, it's for the community, it's for the society, it's for the people that you are connected to. The purpose of work, according to the Bible, or at least one of its purposes, is to provide for and help other people. People. And so then sloth, a failure to work well, is not just about you. It's about your coworkers, about your employer, about your employees, about your family, about your church, about the city, about the fabric of society. We are much more connected to each other than we often recognize or admit. And your work then is not just for you, it's for the community. And therefore, sloth's effects are not just for you but also upon the community. This fall, I read uh, Bono's memoir. It's called uh, Surrender. And uh, it just came out in November. And uh, of course, I read it right away when it came out. And um, Bono is the front man for the band U2. They've been together now 43 years. And he says at the very beginning, he says, pretty much they've prayed the same prayer before every single show for 43 years as a band. The four of them get together, they lock arms right before they're about to go on stage and they pray more or less the same exact prayer every single night. And the prayer is simply this, Lord, would you make us useful? Would you make us useful? Would you make the show? Would you make the music? Would you make our work? Would you make our craft? Would you make our trade? Would you make us useful. And you know what? That is not a bad prayer for all of our work, for all of our vocation, for all of our life. Lord, would you make my work today useful? Would you make me today useful? Let's broaden the discussion a little bit, right? If sloth is apathy, if it's disengagement, indifference, then what sloth does is it keeps us from entering into, pressing into the importance of relationships. Sloth is what keeps us from doing the hard work of repairing relationships that have been damaged or gone wrong in some way or another. Sloth is what keeps us scrolling on the Instagram, right? Instead of, I know you're not called call it the Instagram, that's my age. Uh, Sloth is what keeps you scrolling on Instagram instead of making that phone call that you know you need to make. 
It's what keeps us watching Netflix rather than asking someone on a date. Sloth is what keeps us distant and quiet rather than apologizing and reconciling. Sloth is what keeps us from inviting people into our homes, into our church, into our community groups. It's what keeps us from being proactive and being involved in our communities and in our neighborhoods. And you see, sloth has its own theology. This is important. Sloth has its own set of theological ideas. Because sloth doesn't really believe that God is at work in the world. In order to be truly apathetic, you actually have to believe, you have to hold two sets of beliefs. To be truly slothful, you have to hold two sets of beliefs. You need, on the one hand, you need to believe that you don't have anything good to offer. Right? Why would I get involved? Why would I engage? I don't have anything good to offer, so God's not at work in me. It's part of the theology of sloth. But then secondly, you also need to believe that other people aren't really worth it. And so God's not likely to be at work in them. And sloth's theology, that God's not really at work in the world, keeps you disengaged, disinterested, uninvolved. It can ruin relationships. And then thirdly, sloth ruins your soul. I'll lean on Dorothy Sayers again here for a moment. She says, it is not merely idleness of mind and laziness of body, It is the whole poisoning of the will, which beginning with indifference and an attitude of I couldn't care less, extends to the deliberate refusal of joy and culminates in morbid introspection and despair. You see what she's saying? She said, sloth begins with just indifference, right? Sloth is like, who cares? Whatever, meh. But that's not where it stops because then sloth begins to make you numb. It's not just that you're choosing not to care anymore. You actually stop caring. You're incapable then of being stimulated by anything that's good or true or noble or wise in this world. And then it gets even worse because this solidifies and your apathy turns into a kind of cynicism where you don't even believe that there is anything good or true or beautiful or noble or wise in this world. And that, friends, is a problem because God is the giver of all good gifts. He is the creator of all beauty. He is the one who is the fountain of all wisdom and all that's noble and good and wise and true and beautiful in this world. And so if we are to shut ourselves off from being stimulated and responding to and caring about those things, we're also shutting ourselves off to God himself. Listen to how Graham Tomlin puts it. He says, although when we first think of it, sloth might seem to be the most trivial of sins, but in fact, it may be one of the worst Because it brings despair and darkness, denies the goodness of what God has created, and results in a sullen indolence. The opposite of love is not hatred, it is indifference. If indifference is at the heart of sloth, then sloth is the enemy of love, which makes it the enemy of the best thing there is, the heart of God, the life that lies at the center of the world. Sloth can ruin our soul. It can cut us off from the heart of all reality, the heart of God. So then what is the remedy? And I want to just leave you here with the heaviness of this moment. But what is the remedy? What is the way out? And the first thing the Bible prescribes to us is that we need to learn to work. We need to learn to work. Proverbs 27, verse 18, which is the last of your 
the ones listed there in your list. It says, whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. Now, the second part of this, right, to guard your master, all the, the commentators, all the, the Old Testament commentators point this out, that to guard your master means uh, that in terms of status in society in the ancient world, you would have been uh, very low. This would have been a servant's job or maybe even a slave's job. This is very, considered very low work on the totem pole. But it says here in the book of Proverbs, and this would have been unusual for the ancient world, right? This is a low job. And yet it says, if you do it well, you will be honored, which of course means a very high status. So the book of Proverbs is saying, right, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of those who know, in the eyes of the wise, even the most menial of jobs, whatever it is and whatever society, even the most menial of jobs has dignity to it, great dignity to it. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, uh, Tim Keller observes that this makes the Bible unique in all of ancient literature, in all the ancient world. Consider some of the other ancient sort of creation narratives. Uh, the Greek legend, uh, Pandora's box, for example. You might have heard of this one, or at least you might be familiar with the phrase, Pandora's box. It's a creation story. So there's creation, and, and all the human beings are, are living at first in, in a, a period of absolute bliss. And then as the story goes, Pandora gets a box. And this is a, really the story of the fall in Greek legend. And so the gods tell her, don't open it, don't open it, don't open it. But of course, she does it anyway. And out of this box comes spilling all the miseries that plague human life, including things like death, decay, disease, aging, hate, misery, and work. You see, in the Greek idea, work is a misery that comes as a product of the fall. Or consider the Mesopotamian creation account, the Enuma Elish. In that story, the gods are making the world. They find, though, that once creation is done, keeping up the world is not all that fun. It's kind of an exhausting thing to do. So Marduk, who is the chief god, he says, I will bring into being a lowly, primitive, slave race of creature. We'll call them men and women and to them shall be charged the labor so that the gods can rest. Do you see in the first story, work is a product of the fall. It's something that was never meant to be there in the beginning. It comes out of Pandora's box. In the second creation story, in the Mesopotamian myth, it's a punishment that the gods give to human people. But the Bible sees things entirely differently, an entirely unique way to all of ancient literature. In the Bible, what do you see about work? In the first two chapters of Genesis, God has his hands in the dirt. God is portrayed as a worker by Moses. God is doing manual labor. It's not beneath him. In fact, that's how he puts humanity together. And by the way, this is one of the things that made the Greeks, when they first encountered Hebrew Scripture cringe, this idea that God was getting his hands dirty, God as a worker. But then you keep reading in Genesis 2, and God puts Adam and Eve in paradise, and everything is great. It's the absolute ideal environment for human flourishing, the Garden of Eden. This is before the fall. This is before brokenness. This is before sin enters the world, and God commands them to work. Work is not a necessary evil in a broken world, not in the biblical account. Work is a good 
that existed even in paradise. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, how does God choose to enter the world? He doesn't come into the world like a Greek God would as a philosopher. He doesn't step down into creation like a Roman God would as a general. He comes as a carpenter. The Bible is very positive about work. There is dignity in every kind of work. Because we have a worker God, God is portrayed in scripture as a creator, a gardener, a caregiver, an artist, a physician, a manager, a cook, and even a preacher at times. And because work was in paradise before the fall when life conditions were optimal, then if we're not working well, we are cutting ourselves off from part of our humanity. And there will be a disorientation to our souls. Now, we do have to say it is true, right? There are some jobs that are better than others. I recognize that. Some of you get up in the morning, you love your job, and you think this is what I'm made to do. But probably for most of us, it's not quite that. And for some of us, it's just I get up in the morning, I do what I have to do to put food on the table. But wherever you're at in that spectrum, there's dignity to the work that we're called to do. We should be praying Bono's prayer, Lord, make me useful. To treat sloth, we need to learn the value of work. We need to learn the value of our work. But then secondly, we need to learn to love. And in fact, this is where the word diligence comes from, the Latin roots of that, where we get the English word for diligence. It means to love, right? I'm going to pronounce it wrong. I don't speak Latin. Delegre, I don't know how it's pronounced. But to love is what it means. And, you know, sloth or a slack hand is the opposite of love. So if sloth is apathy, then its cure is learning to love. And this should be no surprise if you've read Jesus in, uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. He said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and your soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love and sloth cannot coexist. Sloth is saying persistently, who cares? But love cares. Love is engaged when you're striving to love your neighbor, when you're striving to love the people around you, you're doing what Paul says in Romans 12, considering the needs of others as more important than your own. So you're not focused on yourself. You're not curved inward. You're looking to the people around you. You're trying to see what's going on with them. You want to meet their needs. You want to love them well. And this kind of living absolutely crowds out apathy. You lose your indifference by learning to care for others. And the same thing goes for your love for God. You know, if sloth, sloth is apathy. Sloth shuts us down to the good and true and noble and beautiful and wise. Sloth is listlessness and boredom. The cure for that is to see God for who he is. God is the one being in the universe of whom it can never be said that he's boring. He's never boring. The more you see him, the more we know that he is the fount of all that's good and beautiful and wise and noble and truthful in the world. The more that you worship him as such, the less you'll become numb to these things. The more that you're going to have eyes to see what he's doing in the world. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He said, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito, and the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. 
The real labor is to remember, to attend. In fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. And friends, this is, if not the purpose of worship, it's at least one of the primary purposes of worship, is it gives you every week a chance to remember, to attend, to come awake, to stay awake. Love of God and love of neighbor squeezes sloth out of you. So we need to learn to work, learn to love. And then finally, and as we close, we need to look to Christ. The truth is engaging with your work, engaging with people, engaging with needs in the world is going to be hard. Work is difficult, sometimes just to get through the day. In some of your jobs, I know it feels like that more days than most. Maybe the culture of your work environment is really bad. Maybe you don't feel valued. Maybe the sales are drying up. Maybe you put together a, a, just a, a great plan and the funding never comes through. The grant's never fulfilled. Maybe your team breaks up and you don't have what you need to get the things done. And it can be discouraging. The same is true on the relational side too, right? Some of you have tried to engage and frankly, it's just been disappointing the response. You move toward a need and nothing seemed to change except that you got tired and frustrated and burnt out in the midst of it. You reached out to somebody and felt rejected. You decided to finally step out and go to a community group and it was awkward and, and, and strange or, or you made that phone call and the situation only seemed to get worse. You know what the Bible calls those things? thorns. In Genesis chapter 3, sin comes into the world. Adam and Eve lose paradise and God gives a curse. It says, cursed is the ground because of you. Painful will be your toil. You will have thorns and thistles. And that's our world. That's the world we live in. All of us run up against thorns and thistles in this world. And when you do, sometimes it seems like maybe sloth is the preferable way to go. And so how do you get the power to work well? How do you get the power to stay engaged in a world that's full of thorns? And the only answer to this is to look to Christ. It's not just mustering up your self-will. It's to look to Christ. And in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ came to be a curse for us. Right, That curse of thorns and thistles that came upon the earth and that came upon all of us, Jesus Christ came to take that upon himself. As we make this march toward Good Friday and the season of Lent, we're considering the cross of Christ. One of the things to keep in mind is that Jesus Christ came to suffer this curse in your place. He came to take the penalty of the fall onto himself. And don't you know that right before he died, what did they do? They took a crown of thorns shoved it onto his head. You see, the curse fell on Jesus. You see that he took the thorny way so that you could have the way of righteousness and light and love that he deserved. And then in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus makes a wonderful invitation. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, in the same breath, I can give you rest, but he also says, Take my yoke. 
He's not saying don't work. He's saying work for me. Work for Jesus. The remedy for sloth is to work for Jesus in whatever it is you're doing, whether you're at the office or the hospital or the classroom or the store or your living room or the restaurant or changing a diaper. Remember that you work for Jesus in all that you do. Look at the laborious, when it's hard, when you have thorns and thistles, look at the work that he's done for you. Gaze at the cross of Jesus Christ, especially in this season of Lent. Use this as an opportunity to look at the thorns being shoved down upon him, not just literally the crown of thorns shoved onto his head, but him taking the curse for you, the laborious way that he took for you. And then and only then are you gonna be able to work for him. It's when you know that he's done this for you, that you'll get the power to work for him, to engage for him, to care about others for him, to put up the crap in your job for him, to love the unlovely and the inconvenient for him. Look to Jesus Christ who took the curse for you. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing and then come to the Lord's table this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your help this morning even doing battle against sloth, against laziness in body or apathy of our souls. Would you help us to look to Jesus who walked the hard way for us, who was willing to literally take up a cross for us. And then may we in response be willing to do the same for him, to work for him. And may we also remember that he meets us there. His, his yoke is easy. His burden is light, even as we want to work for him. Make this true for us this morning, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.